The year is somewhere around 65 A.D. The Apostle Paul, having been released from imprisonment in Rome, is back on the road. He's proclaiming the gospel and he's planting churches. And as he travels around, he thinks about and prays for the churches where he's he's been, the places he's left behind in city after city. It's a lonely life, but it's deeply worthwhile. And sometimes Paul gets an encouraging letter, but too often he gets word of trouble and conflict. During a stay in Macedonia, which is to the north of Greece, he, he takes some time to, to write to his young protege and pastor of the Ephesian church by the name of Timothy. He writes to him because there's problems. The church is perhaps 15 years old at this point, having having started in a spectacular fashion during an intense three years of Paul's ministry. It turns out that the church then, as today, was composed of people. Real, human, ordinary, imperfect, proud, sinful people. And knowing Ephesus was lacking good leadership, Paul had had sent Timothy to pastor the church there in Ephesus. And could it be that what had had started well was was falling apart? Was it crumbling? I want to read to you what what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, when I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed this whole point. They have turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. The problem in Ephesus wasn't a lack of education or a lack of willing teachers. It was a lack of love. And the lack of love led to meaningless discussions on trivial topics. Honestly, when I don't love, the only thing that matters to me is me and my opinion. When I don't love, the only thing that matters to me is me and my opinion. But when love is the first priority, guess what? People are more valuable and more important than doctrine. And then when people are the most important and most valuable thing, guess what? There's a deep resolve to get our doctrine right. When we love people first, we want to get the truth right. Why? Because lives are in the balance. Lives are, are, are waiting to be saved. So, turning to the passage we're looking at today, Ephesians chapter 4. I'll have it actually on screen today. Here's what Paul, I read this before, here's what Paul wrote to them. He says, therefore, Ephesians 4 verse 1, Therefore I, a prisoner serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of of your calling, for you've been called by God. 
Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. The right doctrine of the gospel of grace was obviously essential for Paul. And yet we learn something vital here in in these verses. That accurate doctrine means nothing and it matters nothing if our lives don't back it up. The Ephesians... Yes, they were having trouble with some false teachers in their midst, but false teaching is rarely a problem when good character prevails. False teaching is not a problem when good character prevails. False teachers are, without exception, proud, impatient, and controlling. In fact, it's one of the signs of a good teacher. I mean, sorry. It's It's one of the signs of a false teacher. When they're proud, they're impatient, and they're controlling. Good teachers just talk too long, that's all. So Paul had urged them to live, quote, a life worthy of their calling. Because we want to remember, you and I, we did not save ourselves, right? We know that. We've got that. We've talked about that enough times now. God called us. He drew himself. In Tom, in your life, God was continually drawing to you. He was calling to you time and again. And then you answered. God called us and he did it and we trusted in Jesus, that's what saves us. So now we're like, we're like the athlete, right? Who's, who's being challenged to live up to the jersey or the soldier who's being you know, commanded to live up to the uniform that he or she wears. We want our lives to, to match our faith, not just on Sundays, but each and every day. So here's, uh, here's the secret to it. We see it there in verse 2. That it's not by having all the right knowledge, not by being Bible experts, it's by right character a worthy life and if you're following in your outline today in your program um, there, i made a little typo there it should say this a worthy life is made by character over content if you want to go to that next slide there ed if yeah, a worthy life is made by character over content it's about being the right person rather than being right for example, one of my um, bad habits, I'd like to think I've gotten better, but I'm not so sure. Um, it was really bad in my first decade or so of my marriage um, to Becky, who's been long-suffering and patient. Um, my habit was to always be right. It was to always have an answer, even if I had no idea what I was talking about. Maybe it's a guy thing, right? Um, because as guys, it's really hard to say things like, I don't know. Because we always know. No, that's not how it is. We, I had a hard time saying things like, I am wrong. Or the harder opposite side of that, I'm wrong, you're right, dear. We all know that's the secret to a good marriage. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? I'm a happy, happy, happy man. (laughs) Right? Or to say, I'm not so sure. What do you think? No, we want to say, no, that's not how it is. No, you're wrong. No, I know the answer to this. So we default to choosing content over character. But it's not a worthy life. And honestly, it's really annoying to the people around you. It's okay to admit that you don't know. It's okay to admit that you're wrong. It's okay to admit that you don't have the answers. Character is more important than content. It's like the old saying, no one cares how much you know until they 
That's right. So, what is a, a worthy life built on right character? It's Paul gives at least four specific qualities there in verse 2. Be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Uh, that last phrase there, make allowance for each other's faults because of your love, is literally forbearing one another in love. Now that word forbear, or forbearance, is not a really a common word in our English language. I don't use it very often, but it's a really great word. Some of the old words that we don't use very often are so loaded with meaning, it's worth learning them. And this is one of those. It means to hold back one's enforcement, or hold back one's judgment, or to not demand your rights in a situation. Right? Or to not demand the repayment of the, the debt that someone owes you, the emotional debt that someone owes you. It's a forbearance, almost a sense of, of letting it slide or, or re- being willing to overlook an offense. And honestly, the way the New Living translates it here is very, very good. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Now, there's two sides to that, right? So we make allowance. Becky was learn, making allowance for my faults while at the same time I was learning to work at changing those faults. I don't just say, well, you need to forbear. I'm just giving the opportunity to practice forbearance. You don't get to do that either. Forbearance. We do that for children. I, at least I hope you do. Right? A child is allowed to be childlike, to, to make mistakes, to forget a chore, to drop a plate, to, to leave a bicycle out in the yard. A worthy life. However, even as adults, continues to show forbearance. And then there's three other qualities that are mentioned there. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Which, while they sound lovely, are, well, they're probably not the qualities we associate with things like success and confidence and leadership and achievement. These are not traits you're likely to see in your, say, presidential candidate. Humility, gentleness... Patience? I mean, my, my favorite um, candidate right now is Ben Carson. I just love that guy, right? But unfortunately, he is a guy who has humility, gentleness, and patience, which means, um, you know, he will probably be rejected by the media and the voting public because he's, he's too awesome of a guy. Friends, do you want a successful life powered by the world's standards of success and achievement? Or do you want... A successful or worthy life by the Lord's standard. Those are good qualities. So how about if we ask a few self-assessment questions on these qualities? Do I, do I conduct myself in humility? Philippians 2 verse 3 says that, that humility is thinking of others as better than yourself. Do I have humility? Am I gentle? Right, that word gentle is also translated meek, as in, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, said Jesus. Do I practice meekness, gentleness? Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Am I patient? 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, leads with that one. Love is patient. Were you patient this morning on your way out the door? What about forbearance? Do you, do I have room in our, in our life for others' mistakes and faults without holding a grudge about it? Friends, all the right doctrine in the world means nothing if we're not learning to live lives 
that are worthy. Worthy lives marked by these qualities. Here's a, here's a real big risk if you've got the courage to do it, to ask your spouse or a friend, what do you see in me when it comes to humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance? And then Paul adds to this verse, or adds to this thought in, in the next verse, verse 3, we've got that one on screen. He says, and make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. We'd say it this way, spiritual unity comes by choosing peace. It's a choice, it's a decision. Choosing peace is not about being passive, right? And certainly not passive-aggressive. Passive-aggressiveness is that thing where we nod our head on the outside, but we shake our head on the inside. You know that thing? We say yes, but inside, no. Right? And then, and then the aggressive part of that is, is when those feelings come out in, in kind of a somewhat destructive force. So not passive, but non-resistant See, because in relationships, conflict happens when we resist one another, when we push back against one another. Peace in relationships comes when we stop resisting one another. Peace comes when we stop resisting each other. And instead, we communicate to work out our differences with each other. We don't demand our way, right? But we establish some healthy boundaries, so that we can have a relationship. We trust those empowered to lead us. The people in, in, that God's placed in charge of us. We trust them to, to lead us. Even though they make mistakes. You know that your pastor is going to make mistakes? Because I'm just as human as you are. All right? It's like I'm just giving you a chance to practice forbearance. <laughs> so instead of pushing against each other. We move toward connection with each other. See, a people at peace and a church at peace will flourish, will thrive. It can grow. It can mature. Paul says that peace is a, is a bonding agent, bond, bonded together in peace. It, can actually, it actually pulls us together maybe like glue or like, like these magnets. I've got a couple magnets here, right? So when I turn these magnets the wrong way, I, I actually cannot push them together. They, they just reject each other. They're resisting each other. Well, you turn that around, and guess what? They can't help but, but stick together to be at one. That's, that's what peace does. In marriage, for example, when we, when we push against each other's ideas or thoughts or preferences or needs, right? We're just trying to get our own way all the time. We think we know best. We can't be at peace. We're like these magnets. But then, you know, if I'm going to be that typical guy, right, trying to just prove that I'm never wrong, that I've got all the answers, I lose my connection. I'll just, I just won't get close. We'll not be unified, but then we turn it around in humility, and guess what? We're back together. In every relationship, especially marriage, I think, more than it probably demonstrates it the most, connection connection's more important than control. Sometimes being at peace feels like a little bit of loss of control, a little bit of chaos. But connection's more important than control, and peace always trumps power. And again, peace is not a product of getting our doctrine uniform, perfectly lined up. It's a choice. Because in real unity, through peace, means we can even disagree agreeably. So I would ask this, are you at peace? Have you chosen peace? Are you, as Paul instructs in Romans 12, 18, 
doing all you can to be at peace with all people. And then from from here, Paul launches into a, a really a poetic statement you see in verses four, five and six. He puts it like this, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism and over God and, and, and one God and father who is over all and in all and through all. It's a picture of the unity of the Trinity. God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. In other words, the simple, we could put it this way if you're in, in your outline there. The simple unity of the Trinity leads us. The simple unity of the Trinity leads us. See, the first set of ones here, one body, one spirit, one hope, show that the Holy Spirit is represented in the function and the future of the church. The very fact that we work, that we are here together and that we have a hope for eternity, that's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. The Holy Spirit is God's presence right now, right here on earth, made known to the world through the church. That's our job is to demonstrate God. And he, he does that as the Holy Spirit fills you and me, each and every believer. And, yeah, I would, I would agree if someone were to say, we've got too many denominations, too many different churches. That's probably true. But you could think about it this way. We're still one church. We're, it's like date night at Marie Callender's. You go there for pie, different kinds of pie, but it's still pie, right? I actually have a Marie Callender's box. It's going to come in handy later in the service. So you just think about that. We're different, but, but we're still pie. We're one body whom we have the essentials in common. Salvation by grace through our faith in Christ Jesus. Faithful to God's word of the Bible. Preparing ourselves for an eternal rest with Christ Jesus. There's a second set of ones here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That one's all about Jesus. So the first one's about the Holy Spirit. The second one's about Jesus. He's represented in our submission to him as Lord and King. Our faith expressed through water baptism on confession of faith. I know that's kind of a mouthful. It's kind of a wordy statement. But Jesus is represented in our submission to him as Lord and King. Our faith expressed through water baptism upon confession of faith. See, there's, there's only one water baptism that the Bible teaches. Repent, believe, and be baptized. Baptism, did you notice that in Tom's story, he was baptized as, as a kid in a Lutheran church, but there came that point where as an adult he said, I'm following Jesus, I want to get baptized. You know, that's a really key moment when you're baptized. It was May of 2012. And you, at that point, you didn't know what your future held. You didn't know what was going on. But as an act of faith, you did that. Baptism creates unity among us because baptism is the just, it's the one sign that Jesus commanded to demonstrate the inner reality of faith in Christ. So baptism is an outer reflection of an inner, inner truth, an inner reality. Some of you have never been baptized as a believer. Upon your confession of faith, repent and be baptized. And I would encourage you, just, just go ahead and do that. Follow through on what God's commanded. It's the right thing. It's, a, it's an important, it's an essential step of, of discipleship. Baptism is a public statement of the lordship of Christ in my life. Jesus is Lord. And I submit to him. I've died to my own self and I've been raised to new life in him. And this verse is not about the modes of baptism, sprinkling or dunking. It's not about baptism, the Holy Spirit. Um, it's not even about the number of times one's been baptized. Right? It's about the singular significance of baptism 
on confession of faith as a means into the body of Christ. So if you want to get baptized, you talk to me about it after the service. The third set of ones here is the pure, I'd say the pure oneness of God, just the essential oneness of God. Overall, in all, and through all. We could say it this way. God is represented here in the totality of his creation, which he made and sustains moment by moment. Your heart is beating right now because God is causing that to happen. Every atom is held together because God causes that to happen. The fact that the universe isn't flung apart is because God is causing all things to be held together. Just as God is three, but one, we too are many, but called to be one. Next Sunday, we'll get into the next part of this chapter, but I'm going to make just one more point from verse 7. And uh, next week, we'll pick up at verse 7. It'll overlap a little bit. But verse 7 says this. Do I have that that on screen? I'm going to go to that next slide there, I think. However, it says, He has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ or through the grace of Christ. Just because we're in unity does not mean we're all the same. Unity is not uniformity. There's only one of me. Thank you, Jesus. Right? One's all you can handle. Right? And there's only one of you. Thankfully. Unity is not uniformity. We're not expected to be all the same, but we're expected to be one. You can, you can enforce uniformity. You can make it happen, but that creates some of the most broken and disunified situations you've ever seen. For example, you've heard of you know, super legalistic families where... Where as soon as the kids leave the house, they spin out of control. Why? It's because the goal in that house was uniformity, not connection, not unity. It was just make sure we're all the same. God is one, and because of that, we choose unity. But amazingly, we are all gifted and all gifted differently. So we'll have more on that next week. Our challenge today is really simple, but it's not easy. Simple. But not easy. Am I and are you committed to develop the kind of character that makes unity possible in the bond of peace? Are you and I committed to developing the kind of character that makes unity possible in the bond of peace? Humble, gentle, patient, forbearing in love. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to sing one last song together. And as we do that, I invite you to just uh, pray with me. There may be something in here today that's like, okay, one of those, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got some work to do. Well, that's great. You know what it says in Philippians 2.13? It's that God who gives you the will and the desire to do it pleases him. When you allow him to do that, he can change you. Tom shared in his testimony how God took away his addiction to to drugs. That was a miracle in your life. God can do the same miracle if you're an angry, proud person. God can do the same miracle in your life of changing your heart. So that instead of being addicted to self, you can be addicted to loving others. Or whatever it is. Maybe it's gentleness. Maybe it's forbearance. Maybe it's patience. Let's invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord God, I thank you for these qualities that Paul's challenging me with today.
Learning to be humble, learning to be patient, learning to be gentle, learning to to make allowance for each other's faults and love. God, I confess, I need more of all that in my life. But Lord, I ask that you would specifically show me and show each person in this room, what is it that we're to pay attention to even this week? And at the same time, I thank you for your promise that it's you who gives us the will and the desire to do what pleases you. Could you make that real in our lives even this week? We just need that. When his heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to give you one other opportunity. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus in the first place. You've never become a part of the family of God by trusting in Jesus to forgive you. So what we'd say is to repent from your sin and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. If today's your day, you say, I want to repent and I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you just to raise your hand. Anybody like that today, you're saying, yeah, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to repent. I want to turn from my own way and I want to put my faith in Jesus. All right. For the rest of us, there may be something in those character qualities that God is challenging us with today. Let's let him do that work in us. Amen.